You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. 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 To the Freedom Pact. Thank you so much for joining me today about the show. My pleasure. Amazing. So two of your books that have come out in recent years have really caught my attention. Your TED Talks have done amazing. You've been very popular in terms of science communication. Um, so perhaps if we just start with your latest book, Good Anxiety, um, let's just start perhaps just definitionally. Mm. What is anxiety? Yeah. So my favorite simple definition of anxiety is that feeling of fear and worry that typically, typically comes in situations of uncertainty. And I like that definition because it's simple, easy to understand, and it's also very easy to understand why worldwide levels of anxiety have gone up over, over the last three years because we've all been dealing with the uncertainty of a, of a global pandemic, uh, most of us, except for the very old, for the very, very first time. So um, it is, and also it leads into the very important notion that anxiety is a normal human emotion. It's not something abnormal. You don't have mental health issues just because you're feeling anxiety. It is a normal human emotion. Um, it's just turned up a lot for so many of us uh, in, the la in these last few years. Um, one thing that I would love to kind of ask you, if we go perhaps back millions of years ago, yeah. why do you think that perhaps natural selection mm. would have picked perhaps anxiety is something that will keep our species alive? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, you can use this explanation for all of those annoying, uncomfortable emotions, like why do I have to be sad? Why do I have to go through grief? And for so many of them, and especially for anxiety, it is a protective mechanism. So again, 2.5 million years ago, you're a female, you just had a baby, you're trying to get food for your baby, um, and you hear the crack of a twig. Now that makes you feel anxious because as a woman walking around 2.5 million years ago, that could be, that could be a bear, that could be uh, some predator out there. And so that warning signal is like, don't be relaxed. You, you need to like prepare. You, you need to either fight or run away from that animal so that you survive, so that your child survives. And that is why it evolved right there. Very simple. You need protection. You need to survive. And it totally made sense uh, 2.5 million years ago. Today, when everything I watch on online is, is anxiety provoking. Everything that I see on my social media feed makes me feel bad and, and anxious. We're, we're seeing the negative repercussions. Sadly, evolution isn't fast enough to keep up with uh, social media um, and, um, inventions. Yeah, that's a really interesting point and one I would love to ask because I spoke to the brilliant Anna Lemke wrote Dopamine Nation. Ah, and, yeah, uh, yeah. She told me, she said that many of the things that she, her as a psychiatrist sees today, she said that once upon a time, many mental illnesses were extremely adaptive. But as you said, you know, 2.5 million years ago, we were worried about saber-toothed tigers. 
not so much worried about that now. Do you think there's any chance that we may evolve out of being so anxious? Yes. Uh, and that, <clears throat> sorry. Yes. And in fact, one of my goals in life is to teach people how to use the most useful, valuable information from neuroscience and psychology to do just that, to turn the volume down on our anxiety so we can step back, we can use it in that protective mode. There is a razor's edge, you know, too little and it's like, ah, I don't care, too much and then you're just uncomfortable all the time. But there is a moment, a, a, a particular level of anxiety that actually makes you perform better. And for me, my, my go-to example is giving talks. You know, I'm, I'm the Dean of the College of Arts and Science at New York University. I have to talk to so many different groups. And um, if I'm not a little bit scared before I go on, if I don't have that little bit of anxiety, the talk is never very good. And my best talks that I've ever given, there was something I was worried about, something I was scared about. Mm. And it just really made me just get really big and perform really well. Um, that's my go-to example. But what if we can bring that to the entire rest of our lives? That's what anxiety can potentially do. I love that. And uh, I definitely will jump in and explore those tools with you. But to that point you just made, I interviewed Paul Bloom, and he said that in that instead of uh, doctors visiting people that are highly anxious, mm -hmm. perhaps they should go and, pe and visit people with no anxiety. He said because these are the people that are like free climbing and doing all these like crazy things. Uh, so I so absolutely to your point, there is obviously some sort of adaptive uh, mechanism that does come with anxiety. Is what I'm hearing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it starts with this evolutionary perspective is, is that it is there, it evolved to protect us. And the question that I'd like all of your listeners to ask themselves is, how can I flip this in my life from a big weight around my neck that it feels right now to something that could actually help me in certain situations. And that's what I tried to write about in Good Anxiety. What is the science and how could it actually be helpful for me? Not just a Band-Aid. I didn't want to just um, turn it down and put a Band-Aid on it, but how is it helping me generating positivity and, and um, uh, good activity and good things in my life? That's what I talked about in Good Anxiety. I love that. I love that. And just one perhaps question about you that I would love to ask is, yeah. um, it seems to me that in some cases, perhaps to that point that a, a certain level of anxiety can be useful when yes. we control it. And you are an extremely successful academic, if I if I say so myself. <laughs> were, you, were you anxious as a student or, or not at all? Yes, very. And in fact, as I talk about in Good Anxiety, my oldest, my own personal oldest anxiety is a form of social anxiety, which people, you know, when they hear me speak, they're like, oh, she's not scared of anything. But but I grew up 
being very scared of social situations, the, the cocktail party fear I had for a very long time, um, and particularly in classrooms where I was really interested, I really wanted to get involved, but I always had this fear of, you know, raising your hand and asking something because what if I say something wrong? What if I say something stupid? What if everybody thinks I'm stupid, you know, from this question that I'm going to ask? Um, it's it's the, the script that goes through everybody's mind when, when they get scared of that. So I had years and years and years of that and lots of other anxieties that so many other people have. So it's not like I, I've, I've never, I have, oh, what is this thing, anxiety? I've never experienced it before in my life. No, that, that is not me. It, it, it is really about um, looking at it and, and exploring, you know, all the things that I, I explored in good anxiety are things that I explored in my own life. So you're seeing a neuroscientist kind of um, uh, tackling of of her own anxiety that was high because of covid because of every, everybody's anxiety was going up and and i learned that it could be this kind of secret the secret weapon this tool that i could use and that's what i wanted to share sure and there's also an empowering lesson i think in there that is that if you as you said, you were this anxious student. And now, as you said, you give all these talks to massive audience, your TED talks, millions of views, that that is something that you can contain. You can get a grip of it. Is, yes. is that what I'm understanding? A absolutely, absolutely. Um, um, there are tools that you can use and I try and give lots of lots of different tools because the same tool won't work for everybody i happen to love physical activity i use that to harness my own anxiety i i've learned to love meditation um, um and the thing that i realized is you know the secret to turning the volume down on your anxiety the real secret i don't think i've ever said this on another podcast but the real secret is learning what brings you joy. Because that's what I realized I was doing. I found the things in everyday life, you know, not the trip to Tahiti that I might be able to do once, once in a lifetime, but movement, meditation, eating things that make me feel good, including a, a big old chocolate chip cookie every once in a while, not every day, um, the, um, connecting with people that I love um, um, doing a job that I love, which actually does bring me an enormous amount of joy. That is the secret to learning how to automatically kind of control your anxiety levels. And one of the things that I love about that and that fits in nicely with many of the things that experts like yourself have said on the show is the difference between consistency consistency and intensity intensity yeah. is that that trip once a year to Tahiti <laughs> right but consistency is what you do every day and that's what seems to really matter yeah you know I um uh I I have this concept in the book of the the superpowers of the gifts that come from your own anxiety and I like to talk about it that way because it makes people go huh how, how can that be there's no there's no superpower there's no gift and um when I I was thinking about how to write about um, flow, this 
psychological concept of flow, um, where you get into this state and you're you're performing really really well, and time slows down and everything you know goes goes beautifully. Um, I wanted to talk about that because that's such a beautiful psychological concept. But I, uh, the only thing I, uh, I could say is that, sorry, anxiety really kills flow. If you have anxiety, you don't have flow. And that's just too depressing. I didn't want to, I didn't want to say that. So <laughs> I, um, I had writer's block and, you know, I don't know what to, how to do it. I really, I love this concept. I want to find a way to talk about it. So I go to this yoga class and um, feeling good. So I'm doing my up dog and my down dog and I flip the dog and I go through all the class and then we get to the end. And so we're in Shavasana, corpse pose. And it hit me that I was flowing in Shavasana. There was nobody laying on the ground still better than I was laying on the ground still. And I love it when they say, this is the most difficult pose. And I'm like, yeah, well, I do this one really well. And I realized that, you know, um, maybe it's not the classic definition of flow where you have to be yo-yo ma and playing, you know, your cello at this, this absolutely incredible level. I was, I felt so good. It's like, I'm doing, I'm doing this beautifully. And it made me realize, just to your point, that there were many other times in my everyday life where I was flowing in certain aspects. And I ended up renaming it microflow. Um, I have this green smoothie that I like to make for myself in the morning, uh, that whose recipe that I kind of created over time. And I am flowing. I'm, I'm practicing this recipe that I created. I'm drinking this thing that I enjoy every single morning. That is a moment of flow. And when I realized how many moments that I was passing over, oh, there was flow and I didn't even notice it. Oh, I'm going to notice it. Um, it really realized, made me realize there's this world out there. Well, not out there. There's this world that I have that I was ignoring. And um, I know that that is the case for so many, so many of us. And so that was one of my, one of my personal discoveries in, in writing this book. Right. And that seems to me to be another point that you talk about in this book um, in terms of perhaps becoming mindful of yes. uh, certain things. And I just have to ask you just a couple of questions about yeah. this. Do we know the way in which mindfulness affects the brain? Yes. So, um, you know, uh, <laughs> one of my most uh, popular, what was it? It, it was a, um, not a podcast, but a, a blog post. I was writing blog posts and my most popular one that I ever wrote was a meditation exercise smackdown. And so in this blog post, I compared and contrasted what meditation was doing to the brain and what exercise was doing to the brain. And um, uh, first, we know more about exercise. It's been studied in, in a wider variety of, of kind of uh, venues, but we do know what meditation is doing and there's lots of interesting overlaps. It does improve mood. It decreases anxiety levels. It, it increases positive mood states. It improves your focused attention. Uh, that is the functions of your prefrontal cortex. And um, it will it will decrease that fight or flight response and, and kind of more activate the the rest and digest the, the relaxation kind of automatic response that we also have, even though the fight or flight is much more 
known in the general public. So um, yes, there's there and and um, there's a beautiful um, I like to use in my classes and recommend a really beautiful Scientific American article on the brain parts of the brain that get in, involved in. In meditation, and so what? You, and this is a article by um, Richard Davidson uh, and his group, who is a just a powerhouse in studying the um, neurobiology of meditation. And what I love about that article is that it goes through the cycle of meditation and you think oh so you know this is what monks happen so you just go into the meditation and you stay there for an hour and you never change but no the cycle is you get focused attention towards something like the breath and then you get distracted and then you get pulled back in and then you focus back on the breath again oh and then you get distracted again so so the circuitry that they described goes through a wide range of brain areas, but also acknowledges that, you know, even the Dalai Lama, I've heard him say this, meditation is hard. It's not like this monolithic thing. It's coming in and out and it's the practice of trying. And um, so so it is, it is a calming practice, uh, but I think of it as, a, a true training of your prefrontal cortex. What do you want to pay attention to now? I have this this thing I have to write that is due in an hour. Can I focus on only that and not think, ooh, what email did I get? Ooh, what, what Instagram is posted? Is that, that is what meditation can help you do. Again, not 100% perfectly, not monolithically, but that is what you're practicing. And it's a beautiful thing, beautiful, function and, and um, uh, tool to have in your own personal toolbox. Well, I love that. And I'd love to kind of carry that on with you because you do talk about it in the book as being very useful. Um, so if I'm kind of just like understanding what, what, what I just went on there is meditation. Uh, so exercise is more understood in terms of how that affects the brain, the meditation, presumably because it's quite easy to get rats to run uh, you got it. You you got it. That's why. But you can't get them to listen to Andy from Headspace. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sadly, they've tried, but they just won't listen. <laughs> Amazing. So um, is there like perhaps someone listening to this podcast, they're, you know, they're feeling anxious, you know, they, they want these, these perhaps benefits. Is there perhaps a minimum effective dose of meditation mindfulness that we could use? You know, um, that's a little bit hard to answer. So let me let me approach it this way. Um, it's hard to say to something somebody that's never meditated before. Okay, just just go do it. Ten minutes is so short you can do it. But if you've never meditated, ten minutes might as well be ten hours, mm -hmm. right? And so what I like to point out to anybody who's at least interested in this idea that meditation might be something that you want to you know uh, work up to is that even 10 seconds is is a start. And this is where I also tell everybody that one of the most valuable tools on the internet is YouTube, because there are literally thousands of free 
meditations uh, and just pick the one with over a million views and then just stop it when when you've gone you know your 10 seconds or maybe you, maybe you try a whole minute minute and you can just always come back uh, and 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 find that voice find that those words that are comforting I've, I've tried so many different guided meditations and you could find all different um, personalities and that is the way to do it do not try and go to an hour meditation class with your friend you will be miserable just <laughs> just start really really small and and also um, get in the practice of, of praising yourself I know that sometimes that's hard to do but if you did make it through and just have this calm moment acknowledge that and and celebrate that because uh, I think that's uh, that that's part of the um, the micro flow it's like oh my god that was a moment of micro throw flow I, I acknowledge that and that that was so that was so lovely um, very important to be able to do that for yourself yeah you raise I think a, a, an excellent point there and when I, I interviewed BJ Fogg from Stanford and I asked him and I said why is meditation I said for me I said it's, it's it's quite a hard habit to form. I said, I've got, mm -hmm. just got to be honest with you. I said, I, and he said, one of the reasons that meditation is hard to form is that at the end of it, there's not necessarily this massive release. He said, for instance, people can quite easily become addicted to pornography or TikTok or social media because there is quite a big biochemical release involved. Yes. He said, meditation doesn't seem to have that. So, But what you're saying is, we can kind of give ourselves that sort yes. of something similar. You can reward yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that's so, so important. It's really changed my life when I learned how to do that because I came from a um, history of, uh, I was my my own worst enemy. It's like, oh, you only got a 99 on that test. Come on, what's the matter with you? There was <laughs> nobody that was harder on me than myself. And it took a long time to really turn that around. And um, turns out I found that uh, the, the golden or the silver lining was that when I learned to be kinder to myself in my own head, I automatically became kind to everybody, kinder to everybody else around me, even though I liked, I liked to think of myself as a kind person. Um, it's really a, a game changer. How you treat yourself is how you, you come into the world um, and treat other people as well. So that was, um, that was a really important realization. That's, that's a beautiful point. And, and if I will certainly come back to that. If I could just ask you one more question, perhaps sure. on meditation. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the way I used to do it before is I used to listen to Headspace or, or something before bed. But what would usually end up happening is I would usually end up falling asleep. But I used to tell myself, well, either I'm going to meditate or I'm going to end up falling asleep anyway. So I kind of saw it as a win-win. But I'm not so sure now. So is mm. is there a, is it bad to meditate before bed? What was the? Um, I I don't know if I would say it's bad to meditate before bed. I think like exercise. Everybody asks, you know, when should I exercise? What is the optimal? And it's like the real answer is whenever the heck you could fit it into your life, that is the best time to exercise. And it's the same for meditation. But but I would say that um, uh, a a spirit of self um, 
self-experimentation is really helpful if you want to get into meditation. I tried everything, free YouTube videos. I, I, I bought the Oprah and Deepak, you know, dual meditation. I thought the voices of both Deepak Chopra and Oprah Winfrey would really get me into meditation. And it, it brought me along for, for a little while. I tried the different headspace and another one. But, but again, you have to explore it and find that thing that really connects with you. And for me, it was um, this monk that I met when I was on vacation who introduced me to this thing called tea meditation. So he had studied tea and tea making all over the world. And he invited a, a small group of people um, to this tea meditation. And, and so he didn't say much. He sat down, he brewed this very authentic tea um, and let it seep all sitting there just just in silence we were outside and he poured it into these beautiful tea bowls ceramic tea bowls and he he just gestured like welcome you know welcome to the tea meditation so we we all just started drinking the tea it was a big old bowl of tea so i got through the tea and i'm like oh i made it through the tea eight bowls later the tea <laughs> meditation was over but i'll tell you it was such it was so easy to get through that. And for me, it was because there was a ritual attached. It was time to drink, or it was time to watch him boil the water and seep the tea and then pour the tea. And then it, it was it was a um, recurring ritual uh, that kind of kept me in the meditation. And to this day, I did it this morning. I've done it ever since I learned that. I've done it almost every single day because um, because I, I enjoy it so much. And um, it really, I feel it's not the release from Instagram, but or, you know, dissatisfaction. Ooh, I, I really like that picture. But but it's, um, it is a satisfaction. Like, I did that meditation this morning, I got my meditation in, you feel good. And you feel open in a way that you don't feel during the day when you're, you know, when you're on a podcast and you're really trying to listen to the questions and, you know, there's, there's a lot of cognitive um, activity going on, which is, which is good as well. But this is a moment to just open that all up and, and see how your body feels. It seems to me that one of the things perhaps that I took away from the word ritual, it kind of implies that there's a consistency there yeah. and that if we can perhaps make things easier on ourselves by perhaps mm -hmm. maybe doing things at the same time every day yeah would, would that make things perhaps easier on us to get into these habits a absolutely i mean i certainly find that 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 timing every day and especially in the morning because i found that if you really want to get things done at the same time uh, morning is the best time because the later it goes in the afternoon, something will come in. There's an emergency. Oh no, you have to do this. You can't do that. And so, um, my, my two morning rituals are exercise and meditation. And so I get them in before I, I go to work and, um, uh, that, that is very helpful. Now I don't have children, uh, uh, in the house. And so, uh, uh, I, I, uh, sometimes, sometimes it is in the evening or in the middle of the afternoon, but that time that is, that is the free time is, uh, the moment to take advantage. I love that. I love that. I'd love to circle back to, um, anxiety if I can. Yeah. Um, are, are there any gender differences in 
perhaps whether males or females are more anxious? Yes, there's a higher incidence of anxiety in females than in males, but I'm not aware of any that, that we understand exactly mm. why uh, that is. Um, it's, it's high in both uh, genders, uh, but higher in women. Another kind of, this was a question that, that a number of people kind of asked, at like a biochemical level, what is actually going on in an anxious brain? This is something I'd be super interested to know. Yeah. So um, we we know that uh, a lot of the uncomfortable emotions um, uh, pass through a, a structure that has been studied enormously in neuroscience, and that structure is called the amygdala. The amygdala is a small almond-shaped structure in the temporal lobe, which sits basically behind your ear. You have a temporal lobe on the right and a temporal lobe on the left, and you have an amygdala on the right and an amygdala on the left. It has been studied extensively um, uh, as the processor or the, the um, signaler of threat in our lives that is often associated with anxiety as well. And what happens is um, uh, threat comes in, the amygdala gets activated, and then it goes to another structure called the hypothalamus where um, uh, you get cortisol release gets gets triggered in the hypothalamus. Hypothalamic uh, um, uh, areas can uh, activate that fight or flight response. That is where all of that, that kind of control comes from. And worst of all, um, the well, that's not worse. It's I, I we started out saying that it is protective. So so depending on the situation, it can be it can be useful. But if it's a, a overstressed kind of typical person in everyday life, then then uh, it's not it's not the best situation. But to make that worse, um, what the amygdala can do is connect with your prefrontal cortex, mm -hmm. which is your decision making point uh, um, brain area. Mm -hmm. What does it do? It deactivates it. So you lose some of your decision making uh, and, and focus actually ability during these times of very high stress. I mean, are you making the best decisions uh, in your life at, at area at times of very, very high stress? Typically not. Mm -hmm. So that that is that that um, kind of double whammy has been studied at the kind of circuits level. And uh, that is part of what makes this uh, uh, a, a truly difficult situation uh, to get through. Uh, so we talked about, uh, because we don't want to make these fear-based decisions. And uh, you've given some great tools already. We've got movement, we've got meditation. I'd love to also ask you about perhaps another thing that I think really has become massively popularized in recent years. Yeah. And that is sleep. Yeah. Is that also very, um, it, it, sorry, is, is a lack of sleep correlated with being more anxious and perhaps better sleep associated with better mental health outcomes? Absolutely. Sleep is this background, um, such a valuable tool that we don't even think about it as a tool because you have to do it. You do, you know, we've been doing it all our lives. It's like, oh, that's that thing. But it is so essential to the um, good health, good physiology, good uh, um, um, psychology of our brain. Um, we don't, uh, we don't 
appreciate it nearly enough. Mostly we appreciate it how hard it is to tear yourself away from that last, you know, Netflix series to actually go to bed. We all appreciate that. But um, uh, um, that, that every... Uh, every hour that you pull away from good sleep is makes your brain work harder. You're not getting all of the kind of cleansing benefits, all of those uh, metabolites that your brain is metabolizing during the day, they get washed out during a good sleep session. Um, um, your skin looks better. You feel better. You think better. Uh, uh, the the uh, my one of my favorite experiments was uh, the all nighter experiment that um, Matthew Walker, a famous uh, sleep researcher at UC Berkeley, did. And the difference between uh, a group of 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 college students that got eight nights, eight hours of monitored sleep. They were sure they got eight hours of monitored sleep versus ones that were forced to stay up all night was the difference between A-level learning and F-level learning. I mean, it brings you all the way down. I mean, were they able to sit in class? Yeah. Did they take anything in, learn everything? They, they learned F is not zero. F is, you know, 60%. But, but, the the um, students that that slept for eight hours had that a performance that's what you're playing with every single night when you when you make that decision to go to sleep right right so if if you had to do an exam these days there's no chance that you would be pulling an all-night to, no. to, to study for it no chance also sad i know this is going to be uh difficult to hear but if i have something to do important the next morning there's no way that i'm having any alcohol the night before because alcohol is known to decrease sleep quality and it absolutely does that in me um and so mm -hmm. i that's one of the i did my my self-experiment during the pandemic was to really explore sleep and so, you know, I knew all the theoretical benefits, but I read all the books, like, what are you supposed to do? Take this, take that, do, do this, do that. And um, all the things that I tried gave a little, little improvement, little improvement, like temperature down. Okay, that helped a little bit. Uh, uh, don't drink before you go to sleep so you don't have to wake up and go to the bathroom. Okay, that helped a little bit. But the thing that was like, wow, that sadly really helped was taken away the alcohol so that was my own so and but i only say it and uh, say it here because it is in 100 percent agreement with all the studies out there sure sure so i think you've given us four really excellent actionable pieces of advice here and that is that we've got proven benefits from sleep from meditation from uh exercise and then also um perhaps limiting our alcohol consumption. And I would love to know this because there's always these uh, these uh, axioms around, for instance, you know, an old dog can't learn new tricks. <laughs> and, and I would love to know for someone listening to this and perhaps they're later, you know, perhaps at later stages of, of their lives. Um, I'd love to know firstly, just perhaps how true is this? But the other one is, is it still possible to, for instance, generate new neurons, new neural connections later in life? Absolutely. So um, my first love in neuroscience was new learning and memory, mm. how that happens. And we know that the brain structure that is so critical for our ability to learn and remember new facts and events 
is a structure called the hippocampus. It sits right behind the amygdala in our left and right temporal lobe. And, um, you know, without it, you are uh, the real definition of amnesic, not the Hollywood definition of amnesic, but the real definition of amnesic. You cannot form any new memories for facts and events. And to get to your question, can we grow new brain cells? The answer is in adulthood, there's only two brain areas in our entire brain with millions upon millions of neurons where new neurons can grow. One of them is the olfactory bulb that helps us smell. And, um, that, and the other one is the hippocampus. So how many people are excited by the idea that their memory area the only one so critical for our ability to form facts and events can actually grow new neurons. And the other thing you should be so excited about is that the, the thing that we know that can help new neurons grow, because they will grow normally, you know, uh, even if you, you know, whatever, any normal human has new, uh, shiny new hippocampal brain cells popping up. Uh, all through adulthood has been confirmed into the ninth decade. They have evidence that even 90-year-olds have grow these new brain cells in the hippocampus. But guess what can supercharge the growth of those hippocampal brain cells? It's movement. Wow. Exercise. Exercise. So why is that? Because every time you move your body, you are releasing a whole bunch of neurochemicals in your brain. Uh, some of these neurochemicals you've heard of, like serotonin and dopamine and noradrenaline, that's what makes you feel good. That's what increases the positive mood states and decreases um, anxiety and depression after exercise. But the other thing that, that gets released is this thing called growth factors. Growth factors, they, they go directly to your hippocampus and they help these brand new shiny new hippocampal cells grow so uh, what you've hit upon now is my personal motivation to do that exercise first thing in the morning because i know with every movement session i'm giving my brain a bubble bath of neuro <laughs> neurochemicals and i'm making shiny new hippocampal cells grow in my hippocampus so that that will get me up in the morning. That will keep me uh, actually trying to work out because I know how important it is to have a big, fat, fluffy hippocampus for as long as I can during my life. I love that. I love that. And I'm honestly flabbergasted. I mean, it's crazy to me what you just said that, you know, people can still learn into the ninth decade. I mean, I find that, that amazing. And one of the things that I would love to ask you about exercise uh, because I, I have spoken to to a number of people. I spoke to, for instance, Tal Ben-Shahar, mm -hmm. and he told me that, um, if I can remember this correctly, that exercise was as powerful as the most powerful antidepressants. Yes. Is it? Is that? It's the most commonly, it's, it ha, it's been shown to be as effective mm. as the most commonly used antidepressant in major depressive disorder. So they did a whole big study in uh, people with major depressive disorder. And uh, they gave one group uh, just regular uh, monitored exercise and the other group gave them a pill. And um, they, they both um, uh, improved equally as much. 
So, you know, that that is it, it is powerful. And it's like, oh, that's why I feel so good after I after I work out. Um, you are giving yourself a natural antidepressant. Does it make you more does exercise make you more sensitive to pleasure? Like, does it make you ease? Is does it make your brain like my brain is now easier to be happy after I've exercised? Is that possible? I that's an interesting question. I'm not sure if I know the answer to that because after exercise, what I do know mm. is that you have higher levels of dopamine in the brain than you did before. So, so dopamine is the reward hormone. Uh, sorry, neurotransmitter. Um, are you able to then feel more pleasure because mm. you are there? Uh, maybe you you are more open to positive experiences compared to before the exercise when dopamine levels were lower. But I, I don't know any any really studies any studies to address that. I'm just trying to theorize sure. here. Sure. If, if anyone wants to do a PhD, maybe that would be a, an interesting topic. To That uh, would be a fun topic. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Amazing. I'd love to just kind of finish off with a couple of uh, questions on um, just learning uh, because you really are an expert um, in this field. Um, if I want to learn something right now yeah. and, um, you know, we've kind of talked about various ways that we can take care of our brain, we can manage our anxiety levels. Are there perhaps any things that we should be mindful of when we're sitting down and learning for a test the next day? Are there any things that perhaps we should be uh, considerate of? You know, um, let me start off with the with the main tips from, you know, 30 years in neuroscience that we know from <laughs> how do we learn? what what allows us to learn and and you know you're you're a student you're trying to learn uh this set of uh information for your class one repetition repetition we know it works uh that is how the hippocampus can learn the more you can repeat it uh, uh the more it it goes into your memory that's not um uh that's not surprising um but the second one might be a little bit more um uh surprising and that is association what the hippocampus is really good at is associating all the things that have happened in a particular episode. So when I remember this episode, I'll remember uh, what your face looked like on the Zoom because it's on top of mine, but, but the way that my camera is going, um, uh, 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 your microphone, your headphones, uh, the sound of your voice, the configuration that, you know, my window is here and so the light was coming in from this way. All those kinds of things make up the memory of um, uh, my time time on this podcast. And, and that's very helpful when you're trying to learn something. Can you associate um, what you're trying to learn with other schemas or other patterns that you've learned before? That might be helpful because your, your brain is already uh, in that mode and, and can uh, kind of put it in a pattern better. That can be helpful third novelty so novelty uh, we we this is another uh, kind of safety situation our whole beings are focused on novelty why because it could be dangerous the new person you ignore all the people that have been in the room all the time and oh that's a new person i haven't seen them in the room uh, it could be a danger but but we are uh we focus more we remember more those novel things that may not help you in a class 
And um, but the other thing that can help you in a class is uh, something that we know is so important um, to strengthen memories, and that is emotional resonance. We remember the happiest and the saddest moments in our life because um, that other structure we talked about, the amygdala, that sits right next to the hippocampus, um, really helps kind of uh, uh, strengthen those episodes that have high emotional significance um, um, and help put them in our memory. Partially protective mechanisms as well. We want to remember the dangerous situations so we never uh, have them um, again. But, but it also works for those joyous situations in our lives as well. So those are, uh, those are what we know uh, work. And, and um, uh, you know, that's, that's what the nerdy uh, memory specialist neuroscientist would say uh, if you ask me, how do I remember something? I thought that was beautifully said and i i have to say i love talking about this stuff um so i assume that one of the things that is very important from this study that you cited is we've just learned something and that clearly sleep plays a very big role in yeah. the learning process which right people might not necessarily think about right absolutely there have been very intricate studies about you know what about a nap uh, good sleep overnight, uh, multiple, you know, days of learning. And, um, uh, you know, those are, those are all very detailed responses. The bottom line is what you said. Sleep really helps your learning. You want to learn something well, you sleep. You do not pull an all-nighter. That's the worst thing that you can do. You sleep well. You you use all those principles of repetition, novelty, association, and and um, emotional resonance to help you you know put those things into your long-term memory. And then you sleep again, and then you get an A. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. I'd love to just ask you one more question on this because you said emotional resonance was really important. And I'd yes. love to ask you a question on this. Yeah. So let's say, uh, hypothetically, I'm trying to uh, learn Chinese symbols for an exam. Mm. Um, I've just gone through my my list. I, I'm trying to remember them all. Um, at the end of that experience, I'm just going to throw a wild hypothesis out there. If emotional resonance is important, what if I um, did something to perhaps spike my adrenaline. I I electrocuted myself, or I I went for or I went for a for a for a very cold shower, or a cold bath, or I I ran down my stress, something like that. Is there any science that says that that might help? I don't know of any science that helps that. And when I mean emotional resonance. I really mean emotional resonance associated with that one thing you want to remember, not not the whole right. sixty characters that you're trying to learn. Um, so so um, it's it's more like uh, can you can you think of a story about this word that you're trying to learn that that has some and, and emotional resonance can be uh, laughter too. So right. um, so can you think of something funny? associated with this uh um that that's a really good one if you're funny i i i have um i get nervous if somebody wants me to be funny on cue it's like i, I can't do it so i i probably <laughs> can't do that either but i use other techniques <laughs> amazing and i guess just to kind of finish um i appreciate i appreciate we're, we're running out of time but i i suppose um perhaps this might also have implications for why ptsd might be so potent 
is because the emotional resonance must be so high. Yes, well, that that's true. And the, the other reason why PTSD is so potent is that it is um, using a version of what is called fear conditioning. So something bad happens with uh, uh, um, when you're in a, at war, and that memory, because it is life threatening and and so traumatic, um, really gets laid down. Um, very, very strongly. It's not like your normal memory of your Chinese characters that you're trying to learn that, um, that you know, you're really trying to learn that. And it, it uses a completely different system. The Chinese character learning is a, a, is a learning of a fact that uses the hippocampus. Fear conditioning that happens in PTSD or a big, a, a very heavy version of fear conditioning is dependent on the amygdala that is very, very potent in laying down these fear-based memories. That's why it's so hard to get away from it. And that's why, you know, some of the best um, uh, 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 amygdala specialists in the world are thinking hard about how to reverse that, uh, to, to relieve all of these patients with PTSD. Where can our guys connect with you and do you have any closing messages for them? So um, I would say that the best place to connect with me is my website, uh, wendysuzuki.com. Hopefully that'll be easy to remember. You can learn all about my books and my talks and, and all of my classes that I teach at NYU. And um, my closing message is um, kind of the, uh, my favorite lesson that I learned from, from writing this book, Good Anxiety. And that is the lesson that um, anxiety is a wonderful opportunity to practice your own empathy. Um, first is empathy for yourself, um, for the situation, what, what is making you anxious. Um, th this is not trivial. Th those anxieties are based on things that you feel are deeply important to you. Typically, you know, your job, your loved ones, money, all of these things. They're not unimportant. They're very important. And I also think that Anxiety is a wonderful opportunity to be more empathetic towards everybody else. What if you identify a very common anxiety that you have? You know what it feels like. You know what it looks like. And turn that to the outside and just give somebody else a hand when they need it, when they're in that moment of anxiety. Because guess what? We all have very similar anxieties. I can't think of anything that... that we need more in this world today is higher levels of empathy for one another. And that's one of the things I learned in writing this book, Good Anxiety. I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been a true, true pleasure. It's been a privilege for me. So Dr. Suzuki, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Joseph. So nice to speak to you.